Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Ganal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. I hope you are all doing well. What an exciting month. I hope some of you are in full spring summer mode. We are here in the Southern Hemisphere, so we are experiencing a little bit of winter, but uh, not to cool us down on our mission to share amazing conversations with people that is doing such wonderful work all around the world. And our guest today is probably... One of the most inspirational people that I've had the chance to talk to. He is just amazing. I mean, the work that he's done and throughout this conversation, you can just see his passion for the work that he's doing. And therefore, I am really excited to share today's guest with you. He's a true legend in the marine wildlife conservation, an environmental activist, and also one of the founding members of Greenpeace, which he left in 1977, and the founder of Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. Now, he has spent his life fighting for the protection of our oceans and the marine life, and he continues that mission today through his new Captain Paul Watson Foundation, He is a master mariner, accomplished author, a renowned speaker, and has received numerous honors for his dedication to the planet, including the Genesis Award for Lifetime Achievement. He's also been named one of Time Magazine's top 20 environmental heroes of the 20th century and induction into the U.S. Animal Rights Hall of Fame. In 2007, he was awarded the Amazon Peace Prize by the president of Ecuador. And in 2012, he became the second person after Captain Jacques Cousteau to receive the Jules Verne Award for Environmentalist and Adventurers. During this episode, we talked about the current state of our oceans, how we are all connected to the oceans, and also took a deep dive into the environmental movements, the role that media plays, and what the future might have in store for us. Crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Captain Paul Watson. Well, thank you. You are most welcome. How did your sustainable journey actually start? I ran off to sea when I was uh, 17 and uh, joined the Norwegian Merchant Marine and spent time as a Swedish Merchant Marine, and then I was in the Canadian Coast Guard. But in 1971, uh, the United States government was testing nuclear bomb up in Amchika Island in the Aleutians, and that's a, that island's a wildlife reserve. You know, you can't take a rifle onto the island, but here they're going to blow up a five-megaton bomb underneath of it. And it actually, the previous test, it killed thousands of sea otters and, uh, and sea lions and seals and other marine life. So we got together to do something about it. 
we set up a group called the Don't Make a Wave Committee because we wanted to put this idea into the head of people that it could cause a tsunami, just like the 1964 Anchorage tsunami. So it was called the Don't Make a Wave Committee. And at one of the early meetings, uh, somebody left and flashed a peace sign. And uh, Bill Darnell, who was uh, one of the crew at the time, he said, uh, make it a green piece. Bob Hunter said, hey, great name for the boat. So we called the boat, we sailed up to Amchika Island into the teeth of this bomb blast was called the Greenpeace. So in 1972, we changed the name of the Don't Make a Wave Committee to the Greenpeace Foundation. And then in 1977, I left Greenpeace to form the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. And then in 2022, I left Sea Shepherd to form the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. You've had such an amazing journey and all keeping with with what it is that you you're fighting for the oceans like a lot of people there's so many i mean i'm originally from south africa so you know we've got so many neighboring countries that has never even seen the ocean so i can understand that you know for some people it might be hard to comprehend what are we fighting for but what we are fighting for as well is that every second breath that we take to bring it in kind of conceptualize for the people is because of a healthy ocean. So what, in your opinion, is the current state of the world's oceans and what steps can we actually take to protect them? Actually, I like to give people a different perspective of what the ocean is, because uh, when you say that not many people have seen the ocean, in fact, everybody has seen the ocean because, in fact, we are the ocean. And what I mean by that is that this is not the planet Earth. This is a planet ocean. It's the water planet. And it's a planet where water is in constant circulation through various mediums. Sometimes it's in the sea. Sometimes it's in the clouds, in the atmosphere. Sometimes it's underground. Sometimes it's locked in ice. And sometimes it's in the cells of every plant and animal on the planet. So it's water moving through all those mediums. So the water in your body right now is once recently uh, in a tree. It was once recently in a bird, once underground or locked in ice. It's constantly, continually moving. It's a circulation system, which really means that we are the ocean. And when you impact any part of that ocean, you impact every other part of that ocean. You pollute the air, you pollute the sea, you pollute the earth, you pollute the air. Mm. So it's, it's all inter, interdependent. Wow. In what state do you think we are currently in? Not a very good state because, you know, life in our sea has been diminished incredibly over the, you know, the last uh, couple of centuries. You know, there is diminishment of, uh, of species. I mean, every single commercial fishing industry in the world today is in a state of collapse. There's no such thing as sustainable fishing. It's just sustainability is a word everybody's using, but it's really a marketing term. Yeah. I mean, how do you call the toothfish fishery in the Southern Ocean sustainable? People would know that fish by because it's marketed under the name of Chilean sea bass. It's not from Chile. It's not a bass. That's a marketing term. But it's an endangered species. So how in the world can an endangered species fishery be called sustainable? But we just call everything sustainable these days. And people feel good. They feel good when they go to the market and say, oh, that's sustainable. I'm going to buy that. But exactly. it isn't. It's all, all, it's all lies, really. I feel the word sustainable, for me, it's kind of lost all meaning. And I mean, the word was kind of coined back in 1987, and it means to stay the same. It is sustain, not it is green, it's amazing, we need to do more of that. And I think there's so such a big misconception about that. And yeah, I mean, like you've mentioned with sustainable fishing, what is that? Like a lot of the uh, our crazy birds might have seen seaspiracy uh, as well, where it was just digged in there. If you have not seen that yet, I would 
highly recommend it because it just goes deep into that. And that's when you realize that what is sustainable fishing? It's actually just green washing. 40% of all the fish taken out of the ocean is uh, caught illegally. And uh, there's no way to trace it. In fact, the seafood industry or the fishing industry is really resistant to tracing uh, where the sources. They don't want to see that. Then they start marketing things like, you know, they adapt to diminishment. So when one species uh, goes commercially extinct, we just forget it was there. And then we go on to something else. For example, in the 90s, one fish that was very popular in restaurants and in markets was the uh, orange roughy. Now, orange roughy, uh, you used to cut around New Zealand and everything. The problem with orange roughy is that it takes 45 years for that fish to become sexually mature and lives to be about 200 years old. You cannot compare that to a salmon, which takes four years to become sexually mature and dies. So they simply couldn't survive with the demand that we were putting on them. And then they just quietly disappeared. You don't see it in the markets anymore. The same happened with northern cod in uh, Canada. That fishery collapsed in 1992. It's, it's never recovered. The fisheries, as they just move on to more and more. I was raised in a fishing village in eastern Canada. And certain things we didn't, nobody ate, which was called, like, for instance, turbot. Turbot was called a, a trash fish. Oh, it's got no market. It doesn't have taste. Nobody wants it. That's the fish you get in restaurants today. And like with mussels as well. I think mussels was like considered also like garbage in the ocean. And like now, oh, mussel soup and what other dish you can find with mussels. When I was a child uh, in the 50s, early 60s, nobody ate mussels in Eastern Canada. It was considered uh, trash. It grew on the piles on the piers and was considered dirty. Uh, you know, you ate scallops, you ate clams. And now, because those other species have diminished, now we're, everybody wants mussels. I go back to my hometown and that's what you get. They would never have put that in a restaurant in 1956 or 1955. It's this constant adaptation to diminishment. A good example is water. 1965, if I were to have say, said to you, you know, uh, in 30, 40 years, we're going to be buying water in plastic bottles and we're going to be paying more for that water than the equivalent amount of gasoline. You would have looked at me like, nobody's going to do that. And yet here we are. I was in a hotel one time uh, in New York and I could buy uh, some water in my room. $12 a liter. That's $48 a gallon. Uh, wow. <laughs> you know, that's way more expensive than gasoline. Yeah. And of course, all the Corporations have jumped onto this. So now Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, all these companies are into the water business. Coca-Cola sells more water than they do Coke. It's become very, very big business. And again, this adaptation diminishment can be seen. In fact, in New York City, which actually has the cleanest tap water in the country because it comes from the Catskills through stone tunnels, yet people still buy the bottled water and don't drink the tap water. In fact, in Los Angeles, you can buy bottled New York City tap water. How ironic is that? Oh my goodness. I think this world is really insane. Like, you know, the stuff that we do, there's just so many, I feel, connections that we are missing. Things like we've got so many agencies and I mean, I've got a whale right here that's made from single use plastic straws because that's how my journey started, you know, with waste and things. And then as soon as you go a little bit deeper in the ocean, you realize, oh, it's actually not those straws that's the majority of the plastics, it's fishing nets. And how do we kind of combat that? So there's there's just so much that is going on that people's not aware of. And also, again, once you start digging, you start following the money and you realize that there's a lot of stuff that we don't know of because they don't want us to know 
these things. So yeah, it's very, very interesting as well. And Captain Paul, what has been your thoughts on like this interconnections of social justice and environmentalism and how are they connected? Well, one of the things I want to say about what you just said previous is that uh, when I, again, when I was a child in the 50s, early 60s, we could walk on the beach and never see a single piece of plastic. The fish floats at the time for the fishing nets were made of glass. In fact, they were quite a treasure to just collect them. People forget that that was once the state of our ocean, zero plastic. I mean, plastic was a recent invention just, just after, pretty much after World War II. Now the oceans have, are approaching to have more plastic than fish in them. So it's, it's a serious situation. Plastic pollution, uh, what it does is it breaks down into microplastics. And those microplastics end up getting into the bodies of fish and even zooplankton and ultimately into the bodies of human beings. And it comes from all sorts and many sources. A recent Norwegian report was very uh, illuminated because they found that 40% of the microplastics that were coming uh, off the, of the coast of Norway were coming from automobile tires. As the car goes down the road, it loses microplastics, and that and it gets washed into the ocean. Forty percent of it was from automobile tires, and um, another forty percent from marine debris like fishing gear, and then the rest from you know bottles and styrofoam and all kinds of things. It's becoming a plastic ocean, and it's a real problem. I don't think recycling plastic is the answer because that just ultimately gets thrown away again. We really need alternatives to plastic, and those alternatives are being found. We work with this group called Parley for the Oceans, and they're looking at, you know, using uh, alternatives like fungus, mushrooms, uh, various plants, material, things like that. In fact, making uh, shirts out of uh, banana leaves, for example. All these things are possible. So that's where we really have to transition into those alternatives and get away from plastic. Plastic is a design failure from the very beginning, and we need to eliminate it completely, 100%. I mean, unless, you know, except for things which are really necessary in the medical industry or whatever like that. But uh, we don't need to have single-use plastic. We don't need to have water plastic bottles. We don't need to have throwaway plastic bags, which in the ocean look like jellyfish get eaten by turtles and then the turtles die. We have to stop that. But the problem is it's a big, big industry. And every time you try to get laws passed, uh, that industry comes in and lobbies and try to get rid of plastic bags in California, which ultimately did. But it was under enormous pressure from the industry to influence the politicians to not do it. So it's a very frustrating thing. But, uh, you know, persistence pays off. People have to just keep the pressure on and things do change. And I can say that after all these years, in my experience, there has been significant changes. Uh, people are far more aware now than they used to be. Remember 1972, we, we had a billboard we took out in Vancouver. Just uh, all it said was in big yellow letters, ecology. And underneath, look it up and get involved. Nobody knew what the word meant back then. 1980, nobody knew what a vegan was. You know, or you plant a plant a vega or something like that. But, you know, what, say, I'm a vegan. Well, what's that? Now they knew what a vegetarian was, but they did, they, you know, but slowly now you got vegan restaurants all over the world. So there's a, a significant change. And I think young people today are far more aware of environmental issues than uh, people in the 60s, 70s, and even the 80s. And I also think the youth today, they are not scared to ask questions. Like they ask the hard questions. And I mean, with this climate change movement as well, it's phenomenal to see what everyone is doing. And it's just like, it makes me excited for like what the future can look like. If, you know, we we all just come together and play our part. 
you've done a lot of different campaigns over the years. Would you say there has been some that has been really challenging that you've led and how did you overcome them? Well, they're always challenging. I mean, here's the interesting thing. We don't do anything illegal or have never done anything illegal. We've never injured anybody and certainly never killed anybody. But in 1977, I developed a strategy which I called uh, aggressive nonviolence. We're going to intervene. We're going to harass. We're going to blockade. But we're not going to hurt anybody. And it's been very effective. I mean, we we drove the Japanese whaling fleet out of the Southern Ocean. We shut down uh, commercial sealing in Canada. We've had so many victories. And We've never really been convicted of any crime, any felony crime. I've been arrested quite a few times, but we went in court because, I mean, we're not doing anything illegal. But the perception is, is that we are, because when you interfere with people making money, then they're going to call you all sorts of names. I mean, I get called an eco-terrorist. I say, you know, I've never worked for Monsanto. I'm not an eco-terrorist, never hurt anybody. But, you know, again, the language gets manipulated so that, you know, in a sense, uh, in the last 20 years, about 2,000 environmentalists have been murdered, wow. uh, you know, in Africa and Brazil and even the U.S. and other places. You never hear about it. It's never in the news. But I can tell you, if uh, an environmentalist were to ever injure a logger or a fisherman, oh, you'd certainly hear about that yeah. and how violent the movement is and everything. So the nonviolence of the environmental conservation and the animal rights movement is uh, incredible. There's a, it's an unblemished record. And yet they want to pigeonhole everybody. If you oppose the status quo, then you're obviously you're a criminal. And the real, the real thing they're worried about is not what we do. The real thing they're worried about is what we think and the ideas that we're putting out to the general public. And when people, that, that's what they're really scared of. They're scared of people becoming uh, vegetarian or vegan. They're scared of people uh, not buying big cars. They're scared of people not eating fish, that kind of thing. So this is what they're really afraid of. Yeah, because, I mean, there's over 4.6 million commercial fishing boats out in the oceans. That is a lot. It is a lot of money. So I can understand there's a lot of livelihood that's kind of dependent on this. But, you know, take a few steps back to where we started. Our life actually depends on that healthy oceans. And if we don't do something now, we're not going to be here. If the oceans die, we die. And that's the fact. Our our entire economic political systems throughout the planet is based on short-term investment for short-term gain. Politicians can't do much because if they were to actually do something, they'd probably lose the next election or the support of the people because, oh, we don't, you know, everybody wants to change, but nobody wants to change, that kind of thing. So it's it's a very frustrating thing. And young people today, I mean, for the first time in uh, centuries, we have young people facing a future which is, they really don't know what that future is going to be. What kind of world is this going to be in 2070? It's not going to be the world we're living in now. My generation, I actually, we had the, um, the opportunity to live in the most materially wealthy and freest time in human history. It'll never come again. You know, the laws become more oppressive as things become more diminished. And uh, the things that I was able to do in, say, the 70s and the 80s, I can't do that today. I mean, I, they blow me out of the water if I try to, to do that because it's, because it's become more repressive. And also uh, resource diminishment is leading to more and more um, military conflicts around the world. Everybody wants to take what is not particularly theirs. That could all be solved by being one planet, one one country. But of course, uh, a lot of people are going to be resistant to that because nationalism is a very powerful force. And 
has, of course, resulted over the last, uh, you know, many centuries in the deaths of literally hundreds of millions of people, billions of people, really, over senseless nationalism. And one of the things I used to ask my crew, are you willing to risk your life to protect a whale? And if they said no, then I said, well, then I don't want you. You know, I need people who are willing to take that risk. And when journalists ask me, well, that's that's asking an awful lot uh, to ask people to risk their life. And I said, why? We ask young people all the time to risk their life to protect oil wells and flags and religion and real I think it's a far more noble pursuit to risk your life to protect an endangered species. Here's the real problem. We live in an anthropocentric society. I actually created my own church. It's called the Church of Biocentrism as an alternative answer to anthropocentrism. Anthropocentrism is this idea that we're number one. We're in charge of everything. Everything revolves around us. Everything was created for us. We are the ultimate superior creature on this planet, when in fact we're just a bunch of overly conceited naked apes who've become divine legends in our own mind. So when I biocentrism, on the other hand, something that is understood by indigenous peoples around the world is this idea that we're part of everything and everything is interdependent with each other. We do not live on a planet without worms and trees and bacterium and, uh, and, and fish and whales. We do not live on that planet. It, it, it could not sustain our lives. I guess the best way to, to illustrate that is imagine this planet as a spaceship, which in fact it really is because we're on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way galaxy at incredible speeds. But every spaceship has a life support system which provides us with the air we breathe, the food we eat, and regulates climate and temperature. And that life support system is maintained by a crew of engineers, not us. We're human, we human beings, we're passengers. We're having a wonderful time amusing ourselves, entertaining ourselves. But we're not running the ship. We're not running the life support system. But what we are do, doing is murdering the crew. We're killing the engineers. And there's so many, so many engineers you kill, because then the machinery begins to fall apart. We don't, you know, who are the engineers? The worms, the trees, the bees. <laughs> you know, I had a reporter from Fox News call me up a few years ago, and he said, did you say that worms, trees, bees, and, and, and whales are more important than people? I said, yeah, I did say that. So how could you say something outrageous. That's just completely unacceptable. Well, I said it because they're more important than people for the simple reason they can live here without us, but we cannot live here without them. We need them. They don't need us. So the thing is, we have to live in harmony with all of these other species. There are three basic laws of ecology. The first is the law of diversity. The strength of an ecosystem uh, lies within the diversity within it. Second is the law of interdependence, that all species are interdependent with each other. And the third is the law of finite resources. There's a limit to growth and a limit to, to a carrying capacity. And when one species, like ourselves, steals the carrying capacity of other species, that causes diminishment in diversity and diminishment in interdependence, leading to ecological collapse. No species on this planet has ever survived by living outside of those three basic laws of ecology. That is quite a lot to think about. And I think also for us, you know, to stop referring to resources and things as resources, but to actually give it the same respect that you would give another person, give it that name, you know, talk about it like you would of your grandparents or, you know, of your aunt or something, because I feel the moment that you do that, you show more respect as well. And hopefully that will make more changes in the future. And I mean, there has been so many things starting to come out in the media talking about different things. But what role do you think like the media will play into 
raising awareness about these environmental issues and how do we actually ensure that the attention is given to the topics that really deserve it to make a difference in the world? Well, media is quite complex and easier you know, nowadays because most media is owned by, I mean, major media is owned by major corporations and uh, their bottom line is to make money. So they're not going to report on things which are going to be um, uh, criticizing corporations or governments and really. But I've always felt that the most powerful weapon you can actually have is a camera. A camera can change the world, as we've seen in, in, in many cases in there. So that's why we uh, document uh, everything we do. Uh, that's why we did our own TV show, Whale Wars. That's why we do the documentaries like Sea Spiracy and uh, Sea of Shadows and the, the, the documentary on myself called Watson, because uh, we have to utilize um, the medias that we can control. The problem with the mainstream media, aside from the fact that it's owned by these major corporations, is that they're, but they are easily manipulated. And the reason being is that the mainstream media only understands three things or four things, sex, scandal, violence and celebrity. Every story has to have one of those elements, sex, scandal, violence, or celebrity. If it has all four, it's a story that just doesn't go away, like we see with O.J. Simpson and things like this. Oh, yeah. But I learned about that a long time ago. So in 1977, I brought Bridget Bardot to the ice flows off of Labrador to protect uh, baby seals. That put us on the cover of every major magazine on the planet, you know, oh. Perry Mach. And, and so I learned right, right away the value of celebrity. And that's why we have so many celebrities uh, that, we, that we work with. Because uh, in our world, celebrities, uh, people believe in them. As uh, Martin Sheen once said, it's not that we know anything more than anybody else, but everybody thinks we know more than anything else. So that's, uh, you know, so there, there's a value in that. Rudger Hauer, who was working with us one time, he said, you yeah, know, we're really just a bunch of clowns, but people take us seriously. So, you know, well, this is where we can contribute with, uh, with, with that voice. A couple of years ago, uh, they had some orcas and some beluga whales that were entrapped uh, in Vladivostok in Russia. And how do we get them out of there? Uh, I wrote a, you know, a speech to the Russian government, but they're not going to pay attention to me. So I simply sent Pamela Anderson over there to deliver the speech. And they listened to it and they freed the orcas and the belugas. So, oh, wow. again, that's the power. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And it it just shows you sometimes that it is about that power. And, you know, sometimes it's not really about that they they know what this does to the ecosystem or how it, it happens. It is literally just about power, money, which which is great that you were able to free them with the help of her. So that's amazing. And how do you see the future of it of environmental movement? And what role do you think organizations like yours are playing in actually shaping that future? Well, the problem with environmental groups is as the bigger they get, the more uh, ineffective they become. That's why I left Greenpeace. That's why I left Sea Shepherd. They become part of the problem. So you constantly have to reinvent, reorganize, reestablish, be free to actually take actions on that. And so what we're seeing in the world today is, is the evolution of movements like um, Extinction Rebellion and, uh, and many other groups which are now considered radical because the groups that used to be considered radical are no longer considered radical. In fact, but I, I actually I don't regard myself as a radical. I, I call myself a conservative because there's nothing more conservative than being a conservationist. The people who are out there destroying the planet, they're the real radicals, <laughs> but they call themselves conservatives. So the language has gotten really, really uh, distorted. But we're seeing more and well, more and more people understanding the power of themselves as individuals. I mean, look what Greta Thunberg has done. And uh, 
you know, because of Diane Fossey, we still have mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Because of David Wingate, we still have this Bermuda storm petrel in, in Bermuda. Individuals can do any, almost anything. Because the, the answer to an impossible problem is to find the impossible solution. And that can be done. 1972, the very idea that Nelson Mandela would be president of South Africa was unthinkable and impossible. And yet the impossible became possible. And that becomes possible through the application of passion, courage, and imagination and persistence. So what I tell young people all the time is do not be deterred. If you are passionate about something, use all your skills and abilities to do everything you can to protect that which you are passionate about. And do not be put off by criticism by other people. You know, you only have yourself. You're the captain of your soul. You're the only person who you have to answer to. And another bit of advice, and this is what I learned many, many years ago, you know, because in 1973, I was a, a medic for the American Indian Movement during the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. In South Dakota. We were surrounded by 3,500 federal agents shooting at us, and they killed two people. They wounded 46. I went to Russell Means, who was the leader of the American Indian Movement, and I said, we don't have any hope of winning. Why are we still here? And he told me something that I has stayed with me forever. He says, well, we're not here because we're concerned about the odds against us. We're not here because we're concerned about winning or losing. We're here because this is the right place to be, the right thing to do, and the right time to do it. And he said, don't worry about the future. You have no power in the future. Your power lies in the present. And that's where you can change the future. That's what will define the future. So don't get depressed and don't get uh, pessimistic about the future. Just put all, all of your energy into the present and what you can accomplish. So that's what I tried to do over the last many decades. That's amazing. So you have always been true to your goal and your original vision over the years. Can you share with us what is that goal and why it is important for you to stay the course? I think my goals, ultimate goal, originally it was the, uh, my great ambition was to eradicate the evil of whaling. <laughs> that's what one of the, my life ambitions, but also it's to to do everything I can to protect life in the ocean, uh, to ensure the survival of uh, as many species in the ocean as possible, and to convey the understanding to people that our very survival lies upon the survival of life in the ocean. So those are really my, my ultimate goals on that. You know, I think it's very important uh, to talk to young people. I just wrote a, a children's book on, you know, We Are the Ocean, because children are open to these kind of understandings where it's hard to change an adult mind, really, when you get down to it, because, uh, well, for many reasons, but mainly it's because of the this anthropocentric attitude that we all we all seem to have. That's really the, the key to it, I think, is uh, to be passionate, be courageous, and to be persistent. And in the future... How would you like the world to remember this course that you're doing and the work that you have contributed to it? Well, I don't think it's a question of remembering the, the cause. It's a cause is always evolving. So the cause as it is now was not the cause in the 70s. The cause in 2070 will not be the cause that it is now. It's constantly evolving. New ideas, uh, new imaginations, new, new challenges are always going to come about. To be an environmentalist or a conservationist today is sometimes it's difficult, but to be an environmentalist conservationist in 2070, 2080, or 2100 is going to be a real challenge. You know, and I really am very concerned about, you know, future activists because uh, it'll be a life and death situation. 
people are going to act very violently to these kind of ideas. You know, back in 1972, uh, John Broner wrote a science fiction book called The Sheep Look Up, and he predicted all of all of this, where, the, in fact, uh, the governments of the world will go to war with people who have are concerned about environmental issues or social justice issues or whatever. It'll be more and more of a dictatorship as uh, resources become diminished, demand increases, and governments will be called upon to use draconian methods to keep everybody in line and to uh, keep doing what is they think is most important, and that is being a consumer of material goods. And what would you say is kind of your vision now? Like if you could say, okay, we, we fix the world today, so you are sitting back, you are relaxing because there's no more issues. What, what is that kind of, what does it look like? Oh, I don't envision that there's no more issues with a population of, you know, I was born in a world with 3 billion people. It's now 8 billion people. It could be 12 billion people here by 2100. That's not going going away. But we have to do the best we can uh, each and every day to try and preserve what we have. But one of the main reasons I don't get uh, pessimistic about this is that when you look at, we're in the midst of the sixth major extinction event that even has a name called the Anthropocene. We're going to lose more species of plants and animals between 2000 and 2065 than we've lost in the last 65 million years. But when you look at all the major extinction events throughout history, like the Permian extinction 250 million years ago, which wiped out 97% of everything in the sea, 76% of everything on land. And the result of that is that it recovered after 18 to 20 million years. So no matter what we do on this planet, we might not survive, but 18 to 20 million years ago, this planet will still be here. It'll still have life. It'll still be beautiful. You know, we will just happen to have been a species experiment that went wrong. So it's not about saving the planet. It's about saving ourselves from ourselves. Exactly. That is indeed a challenge. And before we end the conversation, I just wanted to check if there's anything else that you still wanted to mention, anything that you felt we've missed out on or anything that, yeah, you want to leave our, our listeners with. Well, I created the Captain Paul Watson Foundation and uh, we're going to operate our campaigns under the name of Neptune's Navy. And our first campaign will start in June and that will be to take our ship to the waters between Iceland and Greenland to protect uh, about 169 endangered fin whales that the, uh, this Icelandic whaler uh, named um, uh, Christian Lawson wants to kill. Uh, he's like a modern-day Captain Ahab. He's 80 years old. He's killed tens of thousands of whales throughout his life. We're going up there to protect those whales and do everything we can to keep them from being killed. They're endangered whales. The killing of them is illegal, but the government of Iceland is not doing anything about it. That's the real problem. All of the rules and regulations that we have in the world, the governments do not enforce them. Mm. About a month and a half ago, they passed the the High Seas Treaty, and everybody's patting everybody in the back. we got the High Seas Treaties. We're going to protect the ocean. It means nothing. It's words on paper. Unless there's enforcement, it means absolutely nothing. And unfortunately, we're the only people who are actually going out there and enforcing it. And as a response to that, we get called all kinds of names, like terrorists and pirates and everything. I don't care what they call us. But... uh, (laughs) You know, we have to do what we have to do. Wow. And I mean, protecting the ocean, like it is shocking that less than 1% of the world's oceans is, I'm going to say it in in like quotes, like protected, (laughs) because that's like what you've said. It's not really protected. No, it's not protected. Do you know where poachers go these days? To marine protected areas, to national parks, because that's where the fish are. 
you know, so they're, they're moving in on those areas. So, you know, we've been working for years in the Galapagos Islands and the waters around the Galapagos Island are constantly being assaulted by uh, the Chinese fishing fleet, by Latin American fishing fleets. The biggest challenge is actually protecting life in the actual protected areas. Wow. That's shocking. That's really, really shocking. Captain Watson, what has been one of your most important decisions that you have made around Mama Earth? Well, I think that the most important decision I ever made was when I was 11 years old. And that was because uh, I had spent the summer when I was 10 years old uh, swimming with beavers in eastern Canada where I was raised. That next summer when I went back, the beavers were gone. And I began to ask questions, found out trappers had taken them all. That made me very angry. And so at 11 years old, uh, I began to walk the trap lines and uh, free animals and destroy the the traps. And that was 60 years ago, and I'm still doing it. I heard something you shot shot a boy with a BB gun as well because he was like doing something as well. <laughs> well, Dixie Lee Ray, she was a former governor of Washington and in her book called Crashing the Planet, she said uh, evidence of Watson's insanity is that he shot a boy with a BB gun in the rear end uh, who was about to shoot a bird. And she said any boy who would shoot another boy to protect a bird is insane. And uh, my answer to her was, well, in my neighborhood, every boy shot every other boy with a BB gun. I just happened to have a practical reason to do what I did. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. And we are now going to move into our final five. The first one is, what is one social media account or publication that you follow? There's the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. There's my uh, personal account. There's a Captain Paul Watson Facebook account, which is for like, I, I guess many people like how there's about 750,000 people on there. So yeah, those ones. <laughs> awesome. And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? Well, I'm hoping that uh, we'll survive, <laughs> uh, especially, um, you know, considering the state of the ocean. And as I always say, if the ocean dies, we die and the ocean's in serious trouble. So we have to do everything we can to protect uh, marine ecosystems. And what advice can you give our crazy birds this week to help out Mama Earth? I think people should become more and more aware of just how fragile our connection is. You know, since 1950, there's been a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the sea. And why is that significant? Well, uh, phytoplankton provides up to 70% of the oxygen in the air we breathe and sequesters enormous amounts of CO2. And why is phytoplankton becoming diminished? Because we've reduced the populations of whales, dolphins, uh, seabirds, turtles, and fishes in the ocean. And they provide the the nutrient base for the uh, phytoplankton, uh, nitrogen, iron, and magnesium. When you reduce that, you reduce the numbers of phytoplankton. And if phytoplankton disappears from the sea, the reality is, is we all die. We don't live on this planet without phytoplankton. It is the absolutely most essential group of species on the planet. The forests of the earth and the plants provide 30%, but phytoplankton provides 70%. And it's also the basis of the entire food chain uh, in the ocean. But the problem is, is most people are completely unaware that it even exists. Wow. Yeah. And where can people find you? Just type, you know, Google Paul Watson, Captain Paul Watson, or Captain Paul Watson Foundation, I guess. <laughs> awesome. And we are going to link that all in our show notes as well. So if our Crazy Birds is listening on the move, uh, just go to the show notes. It will all be there for you guys. Well, thank you so much for being such an amazing guest on the podcast. And yeah, just for doing the wonderful work that you guys are doing for stepping up for our oceans to protecting every single species that's in there and, you know, to actually enforce 
things that's not being enforced and to protect them, not with inverted commas or any quotes or anything, but to actually protect the oceans. So thank you so much for that, that, you know, we, we all really appreciate it so much. Okay, thank you very much. And that's a wrap. Huge thank you for our amazing guest for being on the podcast and for sharing their journey with us. You can find the show notes of this episode on the mamaearthtalk.com's website. The biggest thank you goes out to all of you crazy birds for listening to the podcast. If you have not already listened to all of the episodes, you can go back to a few of them. You will absolutely love them. I really enjoyed recording every single one of them. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to them. There's over a hundred episodes. So if you feel a little bit lost on which one to listen to next, maybe select one of the episodes with guests that you might want to know more of and start from there. If you enjoy the episodes, why not tell a friend about the podcast and maybe share an episode with them? Let them know that we are here and we are waiting for them with open arms And they are all very welcome to join the crazy birds globally. If you have a question for me, please send them over. The best way to get in contact with me would probably be a DM on Instagram. You can either send it to my personal, which is at Zero Waste Mariska, or the podcast, which is at Mama Earth Talk. Or send me an email at hello at mamaearthtalk.com. If there's a particular guest or topic that you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know. I love to hear from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every second Monday. So make sure to subscribe that you do not miss a thing. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.